We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. Welcome back to another episode of the Eight Black Hands Podcast. Uh, fellas, say what's up. Hey, Dr. Love. Welcome. Uh, we have a very, very special guest. Um, you all may know her, but just in case you don't, we have Dr. Bettina Love with us. and She is an award-winning author and associate professor of educational theory and practice at the University of Georgia. Dr. Love is one of the field's most esteemed educational researchers in the area of hip-hop ed. Her research focuses on the ways in which urban youth negotiate hip-hop music and culture to form social, cultural, and political identities to create new and sustaining ways uh, of thinking about urban education and the intersection of social justice. That was a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> also has a new book out uh, called We Want to Do More Than Survive. Uh, fellas, can we give a good round of applause to the the, the, uh, Dr. Love, thank you for joining us, Dr. Love. Oh, thank y'all for having me so much. It's an honor. So can you say a little bit more about your book before we hop into the uh, the actual episode? Yes. Yeah, so the book came out in February of 2019. And the book is called We Want to Do More Than Survive, um, Abolitionist Teaching. And I wrote the book really because I'm an educator. I've been an elementary school teacher. I now teach teachers. And I wanted to write a book um, that really t looked at what it means to be a black person, what it means to be a person who is trying to do the work of social justice within education. And I also wrote the book because I wanted to have a real conversation with white teachers and what it means for black folks in this country um, and how we are trying to protect our babies, love on our babies, educate our babies. And sometimes what gets in the way of that is whiteness. And so I really wanted to have a real and authentic conversation about that. I didn't know if the book would sell. I didn't know if the book would do anything, but I wanted to write authentically in a way that said, hey, you have our babies. And if you have our babies, we should be able to have a real and authentic conversation with you. And we shouldn't be able to say, well, we can't say these things around white people. We can't make white folks uncomfortable, but you have our babies. And so how, how, how are we always having to, to, to placate to you. And so when you look at most teacher, look at most teacher ed books or most books written toward to, to a white audience to talk about urban education, it's always about, you know, how do we help white folks be comfortable teaching our kids? And I think we have to make them uncomfortable. And so the book was really um, just trying to get at the hearts and minds and understanding of what it means to be black in this country, what it means to try and educate black children. And number one, to think of that as educate these beautiful, gifted, resilient black kids and not to always see them from deficient. So the book just tries to take up all of that. Um, and it's also my journey as a young little black girl growing up in upstate New York and what that meant for me to have teachers who saw me beyond just my neighborhood, who saw my potential, and then also protected my potential. Um, so the book just is a story that weaves in and out between education, my life, politics, resistance, um, what it means to be black. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of this narrative I'm trying to tell and give a bigger picture about education. That's what's up. Uh, so how has the book been doing? And then I know Sharif had a question, but how has the book been doing? 
the book has been doing really well. I have, um, it's done better than I think my publisher ever thought. I mean, it's sold over 20,000 copies already and we were on the road talking about it and getting the ideas out. And it was funny, I think on the, maybe a month ago, uh, Madison School District, on the first day, teachers were on contract. They rented out the Coliseum in Madison. 5,000 teachers came in to, to hear me speak about abolitionist teaching. So it's just been an unbelievable um, experience the last eight, nine months since the book has been out. So I'm just very grateful that I'm able to have this conversation with teachers and be honest and be thoughtful and be truthful about what it means to teach black and brown children. Okay, cool. I know Sharif had a question, so I wanted to go ahead and throw it to you, uh, Baba Reef. Oh, good, good, good. First of all, Dr. Love, thanks again for uh, for coming on. And I know I was out of town, but I know you were recently in Philly, mm-hmm. the 215s, uh, at yeah. the, uh, my, my squad over at the Melanated Educators. That's yeah. Right there. How did that go? Oh, it was awesome. You know, that's that's the work. You know, I can I can talk to 5000 teachers, but when I get to talk to grassroots organizations, um, about what it means to be an abolitionist teacher and, and think about what it means to organize and fight and resist um, with black teachers and black folk and parents and community folk and politicians in the room. That's what it's all about for me. So it was just an unbelievable experience. And I was happy to be able to be able to be there with everybody. Okay. Yeah, now you you, oh, yeah, you mentioned that you were a uh, you were an elementary school teacher, so I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that experience as well as connect it to. Um, I think in edu- you know education is obviously heavily influenced by you know academia, you know universities. Yeah. Um, some of it is research, some of it is is crap, mm-hmm. and and so like one of the questions is like how do you what would you say to academics? Is, to get them to connect more with educators about what's really happening in the lives of black children and educators who are teaching them instead of getting caught up in the academic bubble where they're just kind of talking to themselves. Yeah. So yeah, I used to be an elementary school teacher. I got my master's degree in elementary education and I taught in Pittsburgh. I taught in Miami, down in Homestead, Florida. Mm -hmm. And then I came and taught in Atlanta. And the one thing that I, I knew about being a teacher, I knew how difficult it was. Um, you know, I was a elementary school teacher when I was very young. I was 22, 23, 24 years old. I was young. On the and hill? Trying, hmm? On the hill? Where on were the you? Hill, yeah. yeah. Yeah, on the hill. Yeah, yeah. And I was trying to figure it out. Like, I was trying to figure it out. And so what I, I try to talk about in my book is the mistakes I made, um, the idea that I was doing good work, but I was teaching to the test and I didn't even know it. Um, so it's all of those things. And then I leave because I want to be a college professor. I want to try and teach teachers. And the one thing that I know about being a college professor is that I don't think many college professors, I don't think we go into it wanting to be out of date, wanting not to speak to an audience, not wanting not to say something important. But academia and the way it's structured, it begins to put you in that box if you don't realize what's happening. So what I mean by that, if you are an academic and you need to, you want to stay an academic, you need to publish. And you need to publish in these top journals. Now, these journals are top tier journals. It can, it can mean that only the people who are in the room that you know are going to read these journals, but these are the journals that you need to be published in. So what starts to happen is we begin to start speaking to ourselves. But that is the nature of the structure that we are in. 
And so I think, you know, you have to, if you want to write to a larger audience, if you want to say something different, you have to understand that you have to do double the work in academia. You got to be able to write for those journals because those are the journals going to give you a job and keep a job. And then you also have to be able to say, hey, but I want to say something different. And so how do I write for that audience too? And too often, we only learn how to write one way. Mm. It sounds uh, familiar with the uh, work twice as hard to get half as far uh, narrative. It, it does. I want, to, I want to bring Chris in on this, Sharif. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, talking about, you know, academia. And Chris has just some really good taglines around his piece. Chris, go ahead and jump in. Good <laughs> really good taglines. So, uh, Dr. Go, what he is talking about is I have been known to have a hashtag called educated Negroes are killing us. <laughs> and, uh, that came from years ago. I had, I was on a school board. There used to be a brother who used to sit in the front row with the t-shirt that said that educated Negroes are killing us. I love it. And he would give me a hard time after every school board meeting. He would just come up to me and tell me I wasn't concentrating on the right issues and whatever. And uh, it stuck with me because I poo-pooed all that he was telling me back. <laughs> and then being in this game for longer and dealing with black academics. Mm-hmm. I started to wear his T-shirt in my, mm-hmm. in my mind. And part of that was just because there seems to be groupthink. Everybody talks the same game. Um, they seem to focus 80-20, 80% on things to me in my mind that aren't really the problem. And 20% on things like teaching, learning, instruction, curriculum, pedagogy. So uh, what was interesting was when I saw you in Pittsburgh, you had my head bobbing the whole time. <laughs> I'm shaking. Yes, yes, yes. You saying all these things. And I'm like, oh, damn. And then you got to just like two slides where I was like, oh, bruh. And it was a slide on TFA and it was a slide on KIPP and it was a slide on charter schools. Um, I got your book. I bought your book before I came to that event. Uh, uh, I think you call like TFA or one of these groups, Parasites. Oh, I call it Teach for America. Yep, that's it. Yeah, Teach for America. Um, so, so here, I, 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 that's all commentary, but here's a question. You say, you talk about abolitionism and, and ab- being an abolitionist teacher, and I love that. And I started talking about abolition, and, uh, abolition a long time ago. But people would ask me, what did I mean? Like, what do you want to abolish? Are you saying you want to abolish public education or, you know, the public school system or whatnot? I know what I mean by it when I say it, but what do you mean by abolitionism? Well, hold on, back up. I want to know why you took, why you stopped bobbing with me when I had a critique of Teach for America or charter schools. I mean, for a couple of reasons. Number one, so when I say abolitionism, I mean like the system itself. Uh, I started telling people in, in person the difference between civil rights and abolitionists is that civil rights people believe that the system is basically good, and with a few tweaks, it could be made great. It could mm-hmm. actually work for everybody. Abolitionists know from day one the system is wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just bad. So they don't have any confusion. Nobody ever talked about uh, reforming slavery. Mm-hmm. Right? There was no slavery reform. Mm-hmm. Right? Abolitionists were clear it had to end. For me, in the educational context, that means understanding that this public education system was never meant for Black people. Mm-hmm. And the people that are working in it oftentimes become as much part of it uh, as anybody else, including our own folks who work Mm -hmm. in and make a life off of it. So if you're talking about abolitionism, it's to restart this whole thing 
so that we have schools that are made for black people, by black people, with black, you know, pedagogical practices that have been rethought, thought through. So when you talk about things like KIPP and, and the insurgents, what I call the insurgents, the charter schools and TFA and all those, those are insurgents into the education establishment. Why would I focus on a group that produces less than 1% of teachers when the group that produces 99% of the teachers are producing crap? Why would I focus on schools that make up less than 7% of students when the schools that have 93% of students are diminishing the black mind in classrooms every day? So I, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you about the percentage, but I think you can't take the percentage if not, don't understand the overall narrative. So even though it's a small percentage, the overwhelming narrative around KIPP and charter schools is much bigger than that small percentage. And so that's why I think that critique is important. When you ask gentrifiers about what kind of schools they want, they want charter schools because charter schools says, listen, you come to inner cities and you don't got to put up with those inner city schools. We're going to build, you're going to have a nice, beautiful charter school. And so that's what the narrative around charter schools are. And so even though they make up a small percentage, we got to look at the movies that come out towards charter schools. We're going to look at all the celebrities that, port, that support charter schools and the larger narrative that charter schools are able to control like it. Charter schools do no better than public schools. But when you ask most Americans, they automatically believe that charter schools are better. So even though we're talking about a small percentage, we're also talking about a huge portion of the narrative that charter schools and folks like KIPP get to control. So it is important that we talk about them, even if they're a small percentage, because they control the narrative of education. And folks like KIPP, they might be a small percentage, but the kids that they push out and they set the standard for what other charter schools want to mimic and really sometimes what public schools want to mimic. So for me, I talk about KIPP and I talk about charter schools, not just because they're easy to get at or easy to talk about. I talk about them because they do have a huge opportunity to set the narrative for education and they I mean, control a lot of that money. You get my point, though, that like while you're talking about them you're letting 93% of the education system off the hook. Right, but you every just said, you, but, but, you, but you just said you were bopping heads with me, but two or three slides you didn't like. So yeah, the other because, slides, right. I, had, I had them on the hook. Right. I mean, because it, 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 like, it, it would lead people in a room to believe that you were getting to the problem, which in my mind, would, the problem would be TFA and charter schools. And even if I hated TFA and hated charter schools, I wouldn't be able to agree with the fact that that's the, that should be the focus of black education because writ large, black education, district schooling, American mass education is a hot mess. Yeah. The teachers are not being prepared. And then when they get there, they're underprepared. They're under-evaluated. They're not retained in the right places in the right schools. They're distributed in ways that's highly inequitable through the entire system. So our, our, our kids are living in a mass system where the majority of our intellectuals are letting that off the hook so that they can critique neoliberalism and these other fancy concepts and TFA and, you know, KIPP and, and charter schools and all that. Even if I thought those schools and those teachers were the devil, I would, I would still be thinking to myself, 
But damn, they a small devil in comparison to the big one. Yeah, but I, I guess for me, and we can move on, I just don't see it as a or. I see it as an and. And so I try to critique public schools. I try to critique TFA. I try to critique uh, Teach for America. So I don't think we can just say, let's not talk about them because they're a small portion. I think we have to say, let's critique all of them. And that, for me, is what it means to be an abolitionist. We don't let anybody off the hook. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets nobody gets to the oh well, you know what? You're doing you're doing a little bit of damage. So since you're doing a little bit of damage, we won't mess with you right now. No, everybody gets their slip. And so for me to be an abolitionist, I think you're exactly right. I agree with what you said earlier. But I would also say is that, and when I try to write about this in the book, is that to be an abolitionist, particularly in education, we have to build and destroy at the same time. Because as while, while we're critiquing and while we're trying to destroy and while we're trying to have new places and have new space for black children, they're still going to have a place to go. Let me so jump in here. Oh, I ain't mean to cut you off. Go ahead, yeah. uh, Dr. Love. I didn't want to cut you off. No, but I also think that to be an abolitionist is to also make sure that we're building as we are critiquing and as we are trying to tear down the system that was never meant for black and brown children. So we can't just tear it down without having the people on the ground to give our baby something at the exact same time while we're tearing it down. So I want, so I, so one, I appreciate you coming on. And I, and, I, and this is one of the things that you highlighted when we started talking at the event in Pittsburgh was like black folks coming together and being able to have all these different viewpoints and talking. Right. So I, I do want the education landscape to kind of take note that folks can definitely disagree and, and have good conversation because here's where I want to like kind of push back as well. Right. Cause I think the part where I hear Chris say, and what I actually agree with is when it, it feels as if, we let like just this public system that has not served black kids well decade after decade after decade after decade. And what tends to happen is now is really popular and is dope to like go after TFA, charter schools, reform, whatever the case is. But my thing is I went to school before any of that stuff was there. My city started gentrifying before a charter school was there. Right. I went to 11 elementary schools where black kids couldn't read. Right. And so what it is, is like, okay, I think, I think I got heat for everybody. Like, I'm not, this, I say this every single episode. I think if you black, I think you own your own in education. And so my thing is, I never worked at a charter school and I went to a charter school. I did work for TFA and I loved working there. But when I went into TFA, I actually thought very similar, right? I was like, okay, well, let me see what's going on here. Let me see this. Let me see that. And I, you know, what I did learn is that that was one of the largest black pipelines of of, of educators like in the country, right? So my thing would be like, look, critique them and push them. But at the same time, build another pipeline, build more pipelines, build a black pipeline, build an LGBT. Charles, Charles, let me correct something real quick. Uh-huh. HBCUs are the largest pipeline of black educators. Well, I'm, I'm, well, OK, got you. I mean, I'm talking about like a unified system, though, right? That like of like I, I just wanted to throw that out there. Shout out I mean, to HBCUs. Well, well, HBCUs are the largest pipeline of black professionals in the world. Then, if That's that, right. We, That's we, right. Shout out. And they're segregated. It's so crazy that black oh, oh, we we gonna we gonna get to the segregation yeah. thought. Right? But, I mean, black people in the same place are learning. Wow. But you know, I want to. Go ahead. Go I don't want to just stay on this charter thing. Whatever. I guess what, the way I look at it is this: as somebody who only went to traditional public schools and got a terrible education and lost friends and all that stuff, in a world where if you white and you write and you got bread and you can get ahead all day, like I don't see. I don't see options for white folks being taken away. So in a system that's been failing folks like all this time, I just don't want to take any options away because in my city, it's not gentrifiers that's saying, oh, I want this charter school. I want this. I want that. 
it's people that grew up there that's like, it, there are black families and brown families that are making those choices. And my thing is, if you make that choice and that's what you want to choose, go ahead. Because I asked, I did this talk in Oakland, right? And it's all this stuff around charter schools and traditional schools and all that stuff. And charter schools are siphoning off students and they bad, right? And then I asked them, I said, how many, pri- you know how many private schools we got in Oakland? And don't nobody know, not in the charter sector, not in the traditional sector. We got 52 private schools in Oakland that serve 10,000 students, right? Like, so if one is a suck, then the other one got to be a suck. But I don't want to, I don't want to just stay there. And I know you're going to respond and all that stuff. But what I actually was interested in, because I actually just published a book too. And, uh, and it's funny because you said this line about uh, being a, be a co-conspirator at the talk that you gave. That's actually in my book, right? I actually talked to white folks around like being a co-conspirator, but it was when you was making a point about journals, I feel like when I was doing my doctoral program, I was the actual opposite. So I said this on the show before I used to get into it with the Academy because I didn't want to write to the Academy, right? Like I wrote about black kids that grew up impacted by the crack epidemic that went on to become doctors and the residual social emotional effects that that journey had on them and how it's plaguing them today. But every time I got a chapter approved, I took it to a group of black moms and any word they couldn't follow that they couldn't understand that they couldn't get with. I changed it or I took it out. And the Academy hated that. I will say I had a dope chair in Dr. Jen Wright, whom, you know, who was like, nah, that's who we writing it to. That's who we writing it to. Right. Because I don't I don't I, I was in those spaces where it was like academics talking to academics. And I think there's a that's important. But I wanted to write something for my moms, right? I wanted to write something for like these black moms that are like scared to send their kids to school and things of that nature. So I just thought it was interesting when you had said that. Like, I don't think that that's wrong. I just, like, I just, I, I viewed my entire experience in the academy like in a different way, right? But well, So I think this, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's a generation of folk who are learning how and demanding to do the academy a different way like yourself, like myself, like your awesome and unbelievable mentor, Gen Wright. Like, I think that's, I think that's happening, but it, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. Right. And, you know, I wrote this, I wrote in the book that when I told my mother I was going to get a PhD, my mother said, cool. She said, I did not raise you to be an educated fool. That's the only thing my mother said to me about being a PhD. She didn't ask me about no classes. She didn't ask me what, you know, I don't think she even knew where I was going. She just said, I didn't raise, I'm not raising an educated fool, which to me said, you can go get all the degrees that you want, mm-hmm. but if you can't come back and talk to the people that you grew up with, you're an educated fool. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to help young doc students see that they can write and they can speak and they can be in the academy differently. Mm-hmm. And so and that's what I, you know, that's what I try to show. And that's, you know, when I teach classes, we read stuff that's not academic. So they can see how to write like this, how to be like this, but it takes academics who are brave enough, thoughtful enough, and who can do these both lanes to teach the next generation how to write and be in the academy like this. It's not that it can't happen, but it's also for us to then push the structure because I want to make sure that as I'm writing and I'm telling young academics, hey, write like this, do like this, you can, you can switch it up that we change the structure so, so they don't go to their first job and say, well, Dr. Love said I can do all this and now I'm a failure, I can't get a job. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a push, you know, and it's, it's, it's happening and it's happening slowly. But we are academics. We, I work at the University of Georgia. Mm-hmm. There's a particular type of way that I have to be a scholar at that place. Okay. But I also know that I'm only at that place that I have an obligation to the folks who raised me and the folks 
who know me, not as Dr. Love. And so you have to be able to go back and forth in those worlds. But then you also got to remember, some of us grew up with a silver spoon in our mouth. Mm. And we're, at, and we're black academics and they've never, so not all of us have this whole story. So we also got to remember that as well. Right. That's a good point. I mean, I, I, I agree with that. And, I, I, and Sharif, can I double tap on your question? Cause I think you were like, I think Sharif was actually getting to this thing and that Chris kind of touched on in the beginning. Like there are a lot of black academics that get into ours and get into these spaces. They finally get that degree and then they forget like, I feel like sometimes they forget where they come from. I feel like there's a new language that we kind of have to have and subscribe to at times and it kind of alienates people. So which one of the things that Sharif was kind of talking about before, and I just wanted to double tap because I don't think we went deep in it. He was saying, what advice would you give to other academics to stay connected to grassroots, to stay connected to grandmamas, to stay connected to black parents like Chris, right? Or get that, connected because maybe or get connected, right? Without getting caught up in the academic wind in that bubble. And I, and I think you and I both know what that thing is, right? Like it's a, like I've seen it kind of happen. I've been in places where it's like, oh, okay, this is like, we all sound really smart and we having like a good conversation. But no, let, let me just say, I don't know that y'all can see it though, the way that lay people see it once y'all have been through that extraordinary process of becoming doctors. Like, I don't know that y'all could see it anymore. Like, like, when I say that sometimes our community sends people off to college and they come back confused or they come back confusing, they come back with a different language. I actually don't understand if there's a class that y'all take or what happens in college. <laughs> but everybody starts talking about neoliberalism and blah, blah, blah. And it becomes it starts to sound like I can get I can get on this podcast, 15 different black scholars you know, any day of this week that teachers union all across the country are, are hiring for, for speeches and they will say the same things. You know this, Charles, I told you, I read people's dissertation as hobby, as a hobby. Because well, I feel hold on, like let me people, say this. Are y'all talking, are y'all talking all this black women? I love it, but man. It are y'all talking nice. black women? What's that? Are y'all talking to black women? Yeah, well, I mean, this is what I was just saying. I read dissertations as a a I know who have PhDs do not fit in this category that y'all talking about. Really? I mean, we'd love to talk to them. (laughs) I mean, if you you look at the Brittany Coopers, the Treba Lindsay's, the Tasha Fords, when you look at these women, I think y'all have this, you know, and don't get me wrong. If I'm wrong, let me know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is for black men, Mm -hmm. right? And I, you all have your positions as black eight men. Black hands. Yeah, eight black hands, right? <laughs> so there goes your masculinity and your That's right, right That's there. Right. Testosterone. Right. But I, I'm in touch with my feminine side. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, not, I'm, 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 I'm in touch with. I'm, 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 I'm in touch with my. So y'all got six black hands. Let her finish. Go ahead. All I'm saying is that this picture that you are painting about academics, I would really like to see that same picture you're putting on academics with the women who do this work, black and brown women who do this work in communities. Because I, I mean, Chris, you're from the Bay. There are so many activists who are academics in the Bay who do this work, like Cam, Rima, all those folks in the Bay that do this work. Well, I would just say, if I could just say- I hear y'all, but I think yeah. black women and women of color 
we do the academy much different than these brothers that walk around with their suits and click clacking and with their fancy bags. I like so that. I hear what y'all say, but black but women. This is true, though. She's she's making a point that people. No, don't it's a good hear, point. Only thing I was I, I don't disagree with that point, but yeah, no, I I don't disagree with with. Uh, she's saying, and I also hear what you're saying. I, I think the the nuance is that sometimes what I've no, seen, God. what I've seen is sometimes <laughs> the activism isn't really activism. Like what I see is it's a whole lot of like Twitter activism, and I would say a lot of the folks who would claim they're activists, they are as tied to the system as they could be. They're not put, you know, they they push it in in tweets. But they're not pushing against it in in action. And when I say in action, I mean they're educators. They may not teach their class any differently. They may not, you know, they would they would say all the things that you're saying, like abolitionism, and and then they if you went and visit their classroom, you're like, what the hell is this? There's no teaching and learning, but right? You know and so like I'm, I'm kind of like with Malcolm. Wait, 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 I got I got to bring Ray in. I got to bring Ray in. He's been patient. Tell Ray to send us. Ray's Dr. Love's point. Dr. Love's point turned me around mm-hmm. on this. I just want you to know right now because what she just pointed out, like like uh, uh, Brittany Cooper's dope, right? She is not who I'm talking about. She is not. And then when you make the distinction between the brothers walking around with the suits and their bow ties, like, who are you talking about? Who are you talking about, bro? Never happened. Who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Talking who to, are you talking about? Ray, are you bringing smoke to Chris Ray? Is that what you... Who is he, <laughs> who are you talking about? Are you aggressively joining the call? Who are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, who are you Dr. Talking Cooper about? just made... I mean, uh, uh, Dr. Love just made the point, honestly, <laughs> that I think Bro, he's all right, so, so, so I say Dr., this. Dr., Dr. Love, I'm talking to you, Chris. Right. Dr. Right. Love made the point. <laughs> right. He right. dropped names. Right. Tell me who you talking about. Oh my God. Come on, man. See, I specifically said I could fill this podcast with with people, y'all know who I'm talking about. You've seen them. Are you talking about again. Julian? I've been sitting there. Oh so we're not, we're not gonna, gonna drag our guests into this into the into the foolery. No, 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 no. <laughs> and the point that Dr. Love just made, I think actually is the one that, that should have been made here a long time ago. Because there is a distinction. Not all of the scholars like fit in my generalization. Enough of them do, and enough of them are being paid to speak, and enough of them get called on by the defenders of the status quo defenders of the main system who want to bring them in to tell us that only segregation is the problem and only competition to the main system is the problem. And blah, blah. And that's a good hustle. You could get paid well on that. You could like, right. you could be speaking every week for an entire year on that. Right. Yeah. That, that I love this me. distinction by some of the others that are actually doing some of the work in community. So it's not fair to paint everybody with mm-hmm. that other brush. And I had a comment. Right, so- Ray, I want to, I want to, I'll, I'll go after Ray. Go ahead, Ray. So, Dr. Love, earlier in the conversation, you talked about charter schools and public schools, and you talked about that whole versus thing. Wait, wait, wait. Before, you, before you go, are you leaving this topic? Because mine was on this topic. So, can I can, let me respond, and then you can take us in a different direction. Is that cool? <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I just know you're going in a different direction. So, I, I just want to be clear, though, right? Like, so, you know, as an academic, right? Like, I mean, I'm the person that I get, I get that grief or whatever. So, I mean, I don't, my piece wasn't around. I mean, that's that's not the way that I fully feel right around uh, academics. But I do think I know, I, I've been around Chris enough to know and see very like like cogent examples. Right. To like understand where he's coming from. But obviously I did the academy. Right. Obviously, I, I, there's something that I see a value in. And I think that we kind of need to be there. Uh, my piece around it wasn't really sparse by like, you know. You know, I had experience with black men, black women, all that good stuff, man. My my thing is. 
I'm the person that gets made fun of on the podcast. I always say nuance, right? So where <laughs> everywhere I went though around the country, right? And it's a lot of people. No, no, no. It's a lot of people that I don't agree with, like that are doctors, right? That I don't agree with in a lot of stuff. But there was also this unwritten thing for black folks that were trying to get their doctorate that we was helping each other out. So it's folks that like I will argue with and fight with and whatever the case is. But like they looked out, they looked out for me. Like they really gave me like like Mark Lamont Hill like looked out for me when I was doing this stuff, right? Like Chris Emden like looked out for me, like pulled me to the side and took me to dinner and talked to me around this piece, right? And old heads was like, look. Y'all got to make it through so y'all can get to that platform and y'all can be the full argument on every single side. So I always kind of bring that kind of piece in there. But Ray, I just wanted to say that because it was going to be out of context after you went, brother. So uh, go well, ahead. Hold on. All, all Bro, I was it, saying that y'all still slid by was that there was a gender piece to play out. I didn't slide by that because what I'm but saying is, but I've seen it, in, but I have seen it in both ways. I have seen it. I've seen men and women, black men and women kind of talk wait over. Second, now let the guest, let wait, the wait, guest wait. speak, bro. Let the guest finish. I don't get to know. You're being an example of toxic masculinity right now, bro. sounds a little bit love. Dr. Love, I'm sorry. I just want to do what she was about to say. Go ahead, Dr. Love. I'm trying to answer a question. No, you're not. You're trying to talk question. over a woman. Let the doctor talk, bro. All yeah, I'm saying is that goodness. Go ahead. <laughs> when you all talk about these people, I am guessing that nine, if there, you, you would line up these people, eight of them would be black men. I that, don't think so. Nope. It, mm -mm. Well, I don't know who y'all read it. Yeah. <laughs> some of them would be light-skinned black women, some would be dark-skinned black women and all of them like <laughs> connected to unions <laughs> in one way, shape, or another. All of them went off to college and came back a little different. All I'm saying is the, stuff, academic, you know? the, the women that I hang around who are academics right. at PhDs, we, we don't run in these circles. We are very much different in these circles. Right. You all I'm slide. saying is that there you are moments slide. when I think we lump all academics together and we need to make sure that we're not doing that because then we are no better than the folks who call on us when we yeah. love all academics together. And go, Ray, I'm going to let you go ahead, brother. Uh, just for the record, though, before we get all this hate mail, uh, there, is, there, is a there is an all-female version of uh, uh, there will definitely be a female counterpart uh, podcast that the, that the network has been working on. So that is coming very, very soon. So you know it's on its way. It's on it its is way. definitely on its way. They, they, yeah. they, and they ready. And they got the smoke. They are very ready. Including us. Uh, go ahead, Ray. Bro, I don't even know if I want to talk now because you've been talking so damn much. We got a guess. <laughs> just wanted to answer the question, but go ahead. Because I, I, I wasn't right. lumped in so, it. So, 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 just wanted to right. say that. Let you know. Put you, put you in. <laughs> God dang. Yeah, anyway, anyway, so Dr. Love, earlier in the conversation, you, um, you talked about uh, district schools versus charter schools, and you said charter schools uh, – don't outperform district school. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I happen to be in a district that I outperform pretty handily. And yeah. so I just wanted to hear your, um, I wanted to hear your, uh, your, your, your response to uh, like what, what you were talking about when you were talking about that. So, I mean, there could be some anomalies, but when you look at nationwide, charter schools don't outperform public schools. And so we're talking about maybe a percentage point, maybe two percentage points, but nationwide, charter schools do not outperform public schools. And what we know more than anything is that when it comes to high performance, it has everything to do with wealth. Okay, mm. so here, here's, what, here, here's, what, here, here's, what I, here's what I'll say about that. 
right? Is that I work in a I work in a district to where we pull the same kids. My sending district is about 18% proficient. My students are about 70% proficient. So I, I tell you that, that there's a difference. There's a difference in terms of how we approach. There's a difference in terms of Are you saying how we, your school or your district? My, my, my school district and my school, the district, my school takes kids from the sending district which is Riverhead Central School District, my school, Riverhead Charter School. So we have the same kids, different sets of outcomes. And I would venture to say schools like Success Academy and those schools that get beat up on all the time are outperforming uh, your Scarsdale's, your Long Island schools, your affluent schools. So that affluent argument is not a good argument anymore because if you have kids in the hood that are scoring 100% proficiency on state exams, and then we'll go into the whole characteristics of state exams and how that really doesn't show this and it's teaching to the test and like all these other things. My point is this. Charter schools are judged based off of state test scores. So if we... If we send in data and it's 20% proficient, we're getting shut down. If district schools send in data that's 20% proficient, they can be around for 100 years. What do you have to say about that? So if I'm understanding you correctly, you are saying places like Success Academy and those places are what we should be aspiring to? Because what I'm what, what I'm not hearing saying, not, is, not, I'm not is that you that. got one nice school in your, your district. Yeah. So you can't. No. For, for me, I'm I'm not concerned about one good school in a district. You said that the district is eighteen percent, and this one school is seventy percent. Right. I'm not. I'm not impressed. So you're still telling me there's a swath of kids that are being left behind not racing to the top, whatever policy you want to put in place, and we're going to focus on a few kids or some, a one school that's making it. That goes back to no. Chris' argument 25 minutes ago. No, that, wait, I'm just telling wait, you that. I'm, I'm, I'm 25 saying. minutes ago. Help me out. Remember, remind me. That the attention was being paid to the sliver is what uh, Dr. Love is referring well, to. Well, okay, but let me, let me, let's just correct the record for a second. When you match charter schools against all American public schools, what you are saying holds true. They're not doing any better. The hidden part, the dishonest part of that research is that you don't, it doesn't make sense to judge charter schools given their demographics against all American public schools because all American public schools are less black and less rich than charter schools are. Charter schools happen to have a niche with urban uh, people of color, right? So when you match them against all of American public education, all American public schools, of course you can come out with that nice. But when you look at just urban areas, as Credo did and Stanford did, there is a premium to going to a charter school for like-matched students in those, dis those areas. Entire places like Boston, for instance, which has the nation's best charter schools. You are better off as a black person going to a Boston charter school than, than going to a traditional district school. And that's not the only place. We can't poo-poo Success Academy because Success Academy has 14,000 students. The average school district is only 3,000. That would make Success Academy like the highest test score place for a black district anywhere, right? It's, a, it, it's like several times the size of a school district, an American school district, right? So, and, and this is my thing. 
And I think you're going to agree with part of this and maybe not agree with part. The part that I think you'll agree with is after 1954, we lost a lot of black educational capital. We lost teachers, uh, uh, um, uh, principals, schools, and all the things that Vanessa Siddle Walker talks about in terms of black educational capital, gone, never recovered. When I talk about these schools like Ray or these handful of schools and you think they're kind of like isolated examples, it's the only place where I see black people actually running schools from Mm -hmm. the ground up and actually getting to a point that I think needs to be made, which is there needs to be places to develop that black educational capital outside of the regular system. Because the regular system gets, I was on an American school board. I was on an urban school board. It's a business. It's hard to get anything through there. So let's go back to why charter schools were supposed to be, right? Charter schools were supposed to be a mechanism to, for creativity in schools. That's that's one, what, that was one part of it. That, that was, was one part of it. That's what it was supposed to be, right? Yeah, one part and of so it. So if we, there are going to be those schools. And so you have three types of charter schools in this country. You have the, the KIPS, which are the franchise charter schools, which, you know, it's like McDonald's. Wherever you go, it's kind of the same. You have the for-profit charter schools, which are the Green Dots and the Edisons, which that's a whole different conversation about for-profit schools and education. And then you have the mom-and-pop charter schools. And these are the charter schools that hopefully are started by black and brown folks or folks in the community that want to have something for their kids. Mm-hmm. I'd add one more, Dr. Charter. Love. Say it again? I'd add one more group, uh, the turnaround charters. Well, it, well, the turnaround charters sometimes could fall into those other two groups as well, though. Because here in Atlanta, our turnarounds have gone to different different forms of those groups. Because mm-hmm. any superintendent wants to have a portfolio of all of these different schools, right? But typically, the mom and pop charter schools, those are the charter schools that we should be focusing on. The ones who are innovative, are grassroots, and are doing things that make education not only test scores, but teach the whole child. Where who, gets to, who gets to say that, though? Who gets to determine that we should be focusing on that? Well, you just said that we as academics should be doing something different. And this is what I'm saying. No, but I'm, I'm wondering who's in the we because the other schools that you're talking about have waiting lists of black people trying to get into them. So obviously the, the po- proletariat isn't with us all the time. The proletariat is, a, is attempting to get into things that they think actually are beneficial to their kids that many of our, our intellectuals don't think are good. So who gets to say we shouldn't be looking at these type? We should only be looking at this type. What I'm trying to say is that when we talk about charter schools, we never talk about the mom and pop charter schools who are the people who in the community said, I want this school for my kids and this is what I want it to be. And that school is successful. That that school doesn't get any limelight. That school doesn't get any limelight. It does here. It's getting getting limelight right now. I'm the man, yo. (laughs) (laughs) But I I would also say, Dr. Love, like, you know, and this is somebody who went to a Pan-African elementary school. And if I could make that into an institution that had a hundred of them, you know, be it as it may, people would say, oh, that's a franchise. Like what I would be able to offer that to a hundred different communities. If they wanted that, I would do it in a heartbeat. I wouldn't just stay with one and some boutique of 50 kids. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of black children 
that are literally dying on the vine in, in these schools. And we can't always, and I agree, we have to support our one-on-one, our, our mom and pops, our individual charters, our grassroots, because they're being picked off left and right. They're being shut down in Philly, in Chicago, and elsewhere. Okay. And some of their protection would be if they really came together and made it more of a franchise, right? Because united we stand, divided we fall. Mom and pop, you know what I mean? So there, I think there's a... a see, I hear you on that, but I don't think you understand the scalability of what you're talking about. Say, try, say more. To try to scale up schools that Oh, I know are, it's hard. Wait a minute, I was in the school, I was in the, I was in the network, and we started off with, uh, we were the third school, and now it's, uh, you know, we have about 15,000 students. So, no, I, and, I understand how... And what city is this in? This is Philly. This is Philly, right? Mm-hmm. You may be in Philly, but as you try to scale up these type of schools, what you're going to hit is a ceiling when it comes to teachers. As far as, far as what? As far as you trying to build the school that you want. Because until we get a pipeline of black and brown teachers who have a social justice, pro-black understanding of the world, you hit a you hit it you hit a you hit a wall. Well, that that part I agree. I mean, it, 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 and not just charters, right? Like that's everywhere. I mean, the whole reason I'm, we're done with. I'm just saying that. Yeah. I mean, the whole reason I left my principalship. We got to go back. We have to go back to high school. Move them through a pipeline because at a certain certain at a certain point, when you start talking about teacher ed programs, there is not enough black people. Listen, I'm gonna yeah, say this. And Ray's gonna we get, all agree with that. Ray's going to get mad because I'm going to say this. Um, That's exactly why the Center for Black Educated Development was created. Oh, my God. All this ill-looking. We're going to let our brothers work, man. But but you know what I mean? We spent a lot of time, but I think this is earlier to Chris's point, and this is kind of where I'm at with this, right? We spend, because we spend most of this time even talking about charter schools, right? Like, I'm talking about education in this country as a whole is terrible for black people. I'm talking about education is killing us in this in this state. I mean, in this country, right? Like, so whether it's the however small percentage it is of charter schools or whatever the case is, like that gets a lot of airtime. That gets a lot of attention. That gets a lot of books. Right. That gets a lot of speaking fees. We are not talking about these traditional districts. Like, all I'm saying is go as hard as you want to on charters. I really don't give a damn, right? Like, go as hard as you want to on TFA. I really don't care. But do, have this, I want us to have the same energy. And I'm not talking about you specifically. I'm talking about the Zeit guys, the conversation that's in education right now. We should be looking at the, with, at the at district schools with the same eye. We should be just as critical about if, if, if charter schools and the infiltration of that is like hurting districts, then we should be having that same conversation around private schools in those same communities that's taking just as many young people. And what, I'm, and I, what I really want us to be talking about is we hold these charter schools and stuff to a, a totally different standard. And that's fine. Like, Give them the business. I'm with it. But don't, but we shouldn't. But then when it's like the red for Ed and it's, I'm looking at the, at a march and it's all white women and it's all white teachers and they take, and they teaching our kids and our kids still can't read. Like, I'm not talking about test scores. I ain't talking about none of that stuff. I'm talking about systematically how my friends were pushed out of those schools as well. Cause we'll talk about people being pushed out of charter schools all day. I worked in the superintendent's office. I got letters from principals in district schools, both black and white, with a list of kids on it saying, look, we about to come up on this date. I need these kids gone. I need these folks out of here. 
but we don't have that same heat. Or we'll say, look, billionaires are propping up these schools, these charter schools or whatever in private schools, right? Cool. I work, I sit on Mark Benioff's board for UCSF hospitals, right? It's $4 billion in hospitals. Every single year, like clockwork, they give around $10 million to both. Oakland Unified School District and San Francisco School, like the San Francisco Unified School District. All I'm saying is, if it's good for the goose, it got to be good for the gander, right? And so I just want us to have a real conversation because, again, this is why we are on our own. Black parents, I don't care what system your kid is what in. What is you happening be right now? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, Dr. Gov, Dr. Gov, I want to bring you back. back in. Wait, hold on. And I just was Jesus Christ! I'm agreeing, like, with, I'm agreeing with Charles, but I just want to say, Dr. Gov, I just want to bring you in on, on this point because... He, yeah, he I cannot did, host... He can't host I, no more when we got guests. He can't no, host no more. No, no, no. But no, he's doing fine. He's doing yeah, fine. Don't be like that. You're yeah. a bad teacher right now. You're a terrible educator right now. You're just singling out one of your students and, and whatever. Come on. I, I feel like I just made a good point that I wanted to address. You made a great point, but I want to bring Dr. Lovin because we have some expertise on the line like right now that we can make use of. Wait, why are you... You, you can't you can't talk you can't talk like that to Charles. Charles is a doctor too. He's go ahead, man. It's all good. I want to okay. Anyways, go ahead. Anyways, anyways, Doctor Love, because you said one thing that I want to ask you for more clarification on, or if okay. you can address a point for me. And then what Charles just said, I think uh, if you had anything you want to say about that, but you you mentioned scale, like we can't scale up things. Um, and, and what Charles just was talking about is like the, the totality of all of the system has our kids, like whether you charter or whatever, right? So let's just look at it as black education, period. One thing I never understand is why we're talking about why our black academics are often talking about things that either divide us or um, subtract things, take away options off the table, but they're not always adding things. Like adding what I think needs to be added, like how do you teach black children? How do you open a school that does work? How do you, you know, what is the pedagogy that will work? So I see a lot of the, what feels more like the subtraction and the division. I don't see a lot of the addition. I don't see a lot of black academics starting school saying, I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm going to walk about it. I'm going to show you, right? So, so two things. Isn't there a place for that? Because a lot of black people that you mentioned that are mom and pop charter schools, that's mm-hmm. exactly what I, when I talk to them, that's exactly what they think they're doing. For one, mm-hmm. if they're like, you know, trying to work some stuff out and mm-hmm. be about it. And then two, this thing around scale, funders always ask them about scale. Mm -hmm. Like, how scalable are you and blah, blah. I sat on a board and I feel like there's a diseconomy quickly to getting schools too big or districts too big or putting kids into buildings that have 2,000 students and all of that, specifically for kids of color. I have heard that 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 is actually not great. So maybe is scale the wrong question like, like sometimes? And aren't these small pilots worth it? So... Those are, you had like five questions, so I'll start, I'll try and get where I can. That's true, that was a compound <laughs> question, wasn't it? It was a compound question. You I'll try, it. I'll try. <laughs> so, I think, I think academics and schools of education have a greater responsibility, right? You have academics who have been out of the classroom for a very long time trying to tell teachers about what schooling is. So what I did for five years, when my first five years at UGA, I taught middle schoolers. I taught at UGA and I taught middle schoolers. It's called Hip Hop for Social Justice. And I taught a Mm. class on hip hop and the elements of hip hop and tied that to social justice. So we learned about Ella Baker and Ella Baker and how Ella Baker was as hip hop as hell because of how she understood democracy and understanding. And then I took that 
and I videotape myself and I put all of that online free for teachers to see with the curriculum, with tied to standards. And so I think sometimes we have to put our money where our mouth is as academics if we're going to be believable. That this is actually what we're saying aren't these just lofty ideas that stay in the ivory tower. We have to sometimes put our money where our mouth is. So I totally agree with you. But we also got to give that same attention to schools of ed. Mm-hmm. Because they have, where are the lab schools? Mm-hmm. Where are our schools of ed who are supporting these mom and pop charter mm-hmm. schools? Where are the schools of ed who are saying, hey, this is good teaching and we're going to uplift this good teaching? So I just don't think it's the academics. I also think we got to put these colleges on blast. Yeah, say, oh, we're deeply no invested yeah. in the community. The community don't even know y'all. Most of the right. folks in the community don't want y'all around from all the research you've done that has harmed them for years. That's right. And then you go into that space academic as an academic and you got to try, well, what do I do? So I, I, I don't think we can put all the pressure on academics when these institutions sit in cities. That's right. Surrounded by black folks. See, you got my head bobbing again. See this? See this? You got my head bobbing again. So I just don't want to put the pressure on academics all the time. Now, mind you, I think we got work to do, and I'm not letting this off the hook for some of the foolishness that we do as academics. And I'll, you know, yes. But also, we got to put that same engine and critique into schools of ed and colleges as a whole. And then I think your other question was around... Scale. 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 The reason why I'm so... And I don't mean scale as in how corporate America and charter schools talk about scale. I mean scale when it comes to good teaching Mm -hmm. and what I know about good teaching. Now, I am someone who opened up three charter schools in Atlanta. Ooh, now see, we didn't, why this conversation this comes up? It's in the book. I opened up three charter schools in Atlanta. (laughs) I know, but it just now came on. I know how hard it is to try to hire good teachers. Mm-hmm. Teachers, when I say good, I mean understand the social and emotional intelligence of students, want the best out of students, have some type of care and disposition when it comes to understanding students of color and what that means and students living in poverty. So we can scale, we can, we can create all these schools, but you have to have a pipeline of teachers. So when you open up a school and 30% of those teachers you really don't want. <laughs> We have to ask ourselves, <laughs> is that better to do all this scaling up? Right. Or do we like, we said, this is what abolition is, back to abolitionist teaching. You get your folk, you get in your community, and you do what's best for your babies. And so at the same time where we're trying to talk about, we need this, we need that, we need this, we are asking institutions that are inherently racist to do the right thing. They're not going to do it. So we got to build something on our own. So how do we as black folks scale mm-hmm. up Open and forget to about this damn system? Mm-hmm. That's how we do it. I mean, honestly, we open schools, private, we open, independent. We open schools. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, listen, there's a network of people across the country that are mom and pop shops, people of color, mostly black folks in the charter collaborative. And that's exactly what they do. And there's hundreds of them. Yeah, and, but, and also, but also remember, like, you know, the brother from Philly. We got to remember, everybody's not Philly. 
Yeah, no, I'm talking nationally though. This yeah, is nationally. I'm, just, I'm just saying when you get to yeah. the when we talk about educating black and brown children nationally. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's hard to get some radical teachers to the South to go to some of these podunk counties and these rural areas. We don't even talk about education when it comes to rural areas and what that means. Right. We okay. still have so, places. So back to like where Charles was going with this though. Charles really was driving the point home about how we let districts off the hook, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even within, um, it seems like even within your scholarship, there is a, there's a definite strident black militant strain to it. Uh, you love black people. You love mm-hmm. our history, love our hip hop. You know that hip hop started on the West coast. And that's, Oh my gosh, hip-hop. please, I, please you know don't sign on that. Don't co-sign on that. <laughs> Anyways, never mind. I just had to slide that in there. But what about letting what about letting the districts off the hook? Why should we? I mean, as black folks, why should we let we should let anybody off the hook? I mean, I don't, you know, one chapter of my book is going at TFA and Teach for America and charter schools. The other part of my book goes at this country and goes at education as a whole. Mm-hmm. Right, there's seven chapters. I only spend one chapter on that. And yeah, so, that slash that slash show was about that slash show was all that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not. Stop. It was not. It was like two or three. Five. I, I, it was I'm most, joking. It was. I'm, I'm joking. Not, you're joking, right? I know you're joking. Because yeah, that ain't yeah. even true. So I know yeah. you're joking. I, listen, listen, listen. So. Oh, his, his, I don't. I don't. I haven't thought. I look at just. He's gonna say, "Listen, listen, listen," and then he's calling in on Boost Mobile. Doctor Love, before they go on, uh, if you are in New York at any time, you are welcome to come and visit my school, and and I'll pick you up from anywhere in New York State. Come All right. With a day. Let me know. Now, is your school in the city? No, no, no. We're we're out in rural Long Island. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, all right. I know a little bit about Long Island. My sister went to Stony Brook. Yeah, I no. went to Stony Brook too. Okay, there you go. Right. Right. Charles, what was your point, Charles? Because I feel like I cut you off, bro. You you do your. Thing. No, I think I think it's cool. I think I, I mean my you know like I said I guess it was you know anyway. I, my question was just around not question but we in these common conversations. Uh, whether it's academics, whether it's folks that's just giving talks on TV, like the stuff that actually gets raised up, um, like when we all just support like the, 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 the strikes just unilaterally, like no one is ever just saying, okay, how are we going to make sure our kids are getting what they need and how are we going to hold folks accountable? So one of the things that we've always talked about is, look, we have families and students that support teachers during strikes where those same teachers come and support parents and students, if they decide to strike, if they actually, if black folks actually just said, you know what, we're going to hold our kids from this school for a month until we get the stuff that we mm-hmm. need. Right. Like that type of collective action. Right. To actually have something better for our people. I just don't know how that would go over. And I just want to get, I want to know your thoughts on that. Well, I think it's, it's, it's not about. It's, it's about where, because there are places that that is happening. So you take places like Oregon. Oregon had a strike uh, last year and they were supported. Places like Seattle, teachers were supported. So I think it's about an awareness. But some of those places like Seattle, they have done that work and they have been building with parents for a while. So I I don't think that 
No, no, parents, I just want to be parents in Seattle. Let's just be real. Seattle is a white progressive enclave with very racist uh, practices that all get glossed over under the banner of equity. But there is no equity in Seattle. Seattle yeah, is like but, but, a terrible but we also, example. But we also got to talk about interest convergence, right? And the reason why Seattle yeah. is now like, oh, what's going on is because those white kids are failing those tests. And so now they want some type of justice. So that's where what I mean is that we have to think about we want teachers and parents and community folks to get on board. Black folks always have to come from a sense of interest convergence, which means that how can I take my what's going on in my community with my children and find a way in which white people and their kids are having the same issues? And then then they'll say, well, yeah, we need to do something about that. And And so they're not just going to do that out the kindness of their hearts. We have to have some type of interest convergence. And that the interest, has to the interest convergence in Seattle right now, let's just be, this is a great case study because the white parents of North Seattle and the teachers union are very much converged on their okay. interests and their interests are not actually the, the children of West uh, or, or South Seattle. And yeah, no, Ray is, Ray and is children of colors. Yeah, I think, he, I think he had fell off, but if he come back, I'll, I'll, I'll take care okay, of him. Okay, okay. He had a bad connection. Bruce, Bruce Mobile. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's listening to that East Coast hip hop. Uh, anyway, which is the best? Which is the best? Which is not even the best. It's yeah, not even the best. Can you, gentlemen, can you focus? West is the best. West is the best. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. Um, so, Charles, did you drive that home? That point that you were I trying just, to drive? Home? I mean, I guess the the part that I would add, right, is that we always got to think about interest conversion. Like, I just, I'm, I'm just tired as a people of if my brilliance, if, if my life has to be dependent on racist people deciding they don't want to be racist and want to work with me, if white people decide they actually care about black people, then I'm Ooh. telling you, man, put, put the bullet in my head now, right? I, I can't play that game. That game don't give me no agency. I just feel like we're one of the only groups that got to wait for white folks to actually want to be in partnership with us. Cause white folks ain't waiting for us. Right. Like and Asian folks in my community ain't waiting for nobody. Right. They just like, Hey, check this out. This is what we're doing. We're going to go to your district school and all of our kids are going to go to Chinese school after school or on Saturday, you pick which one. Right. And I just feel like for me, I like the message that you're making, right? Because I think it's a, it's, it's a way we should be thinking. But my thing is, if that's what I got to wait on, man, I got to just take me out. I want black people to just be like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, we in this on our own. Like, we about to get back to, like, the roots of teaching and educating our own again. Like, and I just want to see more of that. So I think that you were saying a bit of that as well. And well, I get what you're going on interest conversion. But what I, I think, I think it hurts my heart to hear that. Right. But I think it's, it's hard. It's easy to get discouraged. But we got to remember it is happening around the country. I mean, the brother just talked about a school a network in Philadelphia that has 1,500 students. It is happening around the country. And so... We have always educated our children in particular type of ways. We know how to educate our children, right? But we're going up against systematic racism all the damn time. So it does become hard and it does become frustrating. But I, I, just, I just don't want us to think that the good work is not happening at all in any type of capacities around the country. There are a few really dope independent schools in Atlanta where, where, where folks just found space and said, we're going to take up space and anybody wants to come, come educate your children. Right. So I just, I just don't want us to feel like black folks are not, we are in despair and oh, we, I, we're not doing anything. 
Yeah, I, I don't feel that at all. I feel like black folks don't. I, what I'm saying is the opposite. I'm saying I don't think we need to wait for white people. I'm saying that, like, well, we're not. I, I think we're not. I think, I think I'm going off of what you were saying, right? When you were talking about interest conversion and you were talking right. about white folks and black folks coming together and things like that. Like, I was saying that's what I was directly commenting on. So, all, I wanted, all I'm saying is that there, there's more than one way to skin a cat. That's yeah. all I'm saying. I got and that. Yeah, can I ask you a question about that part, too? Like the, the question about the, can I ask you a question about that? Because this interest yeah. convergence point is one that gets made a lot. But how come there's such a strong critique for the insurgents, but there never is a critique of teachers' unions? There is never a critique of their history of racism, their history of smoothing over, making inequitable things sound like equity. They're, they're like their ability to use our community and use parents and pay off retail civil rights organizations to come out on points that are bad for the community and actually cutting off things that the proletariat actually wants. How come with scholars, there's never a real penetrating uh, critique of that one part of public education, that one group? They never seem to collect the type of hands they're supposed to collect. Why is it? I don't know. I, I, I personally don't think scholars are paid by the union, so I don't know. Well, most scholars are unionized. That might be one part of it. But, but. I, I, I know some scholars that get a pretty penny from the union. But. I'm just saying, I don't know. Like, I don't know. What I will say, you know, if you look at some of the work coming out of Chicago with folks like Eve Ewing, who's looking at schools closing and what has happened there, there's critiques of the union. So I don't know why we have not thought about looking at the unions and how they uphold some of the racism and how they uphold many of the mediocrity when it comes to teachers and some of that foolishness that they let slide as unions. That's another good area of research that should be done. But we I, just don't, we never get it. We never get it. And they do, they do some, they move a lot in our communities. They move a lot. And they actually like, they move our organizations. They move the nonprofit industrial complex. They get white moms in the right parts of town. Like all unions work like, ready to go. Unions work like Democrats. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, well, damn. Yeah, See, yeah, okay. Now you just get the down. podcast on fire. Hey, damn. Hey, but that's I the truth. I'm, 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 in, I'm in love with the love. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just I the see why they call you Dr. Love, because damn, that, just, <laughs> that really just boof. Well, and I know we coming up on time. Uh, I wanted to let folks kind of get their final thoughts in, and Dr. Love will leave the final, final word to you. Uh, Sharif, you want to kick us off? Yeah, um, I think you you said a point earlier. I would love for you just to expand on in your final um, thoughts just around the black teacher pipeline. And I agree with you. You know, um, we need more schools. We need more black folks leading. But I, I would say that there will be a lot of academics, maybe not the academics that you named. They will be some black women in this academic group who will come after folks who are trying to do anything independently, because there is a narrative amongst academics that, you know, traditional is best and anything outside of that is, you know, insurgent or all the fancy terms that they, you know, that they ascribe to it now. But I would love for you to, um, you know, just talk about what would you tell, um, you know, our youth, a a lot of them who would be, you know, saying like, hey, I felt oppressed in my school. Why should I return? Um, what do we say to them to, you know, become vanguards in the classrooms and schools in the regular system to change it? 
and um, just as importantly, if not more importantly, create schools on their own. Okay. And if, yeah, uh, Chris, did you have some uh, final thoughts, brother? So here's my final thought. Um, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. And you did have my head bobbing like you did before and <laughs> a few points. But this is the part of the show where I tell our listeners, if you have been listening to this and you, all, you got all the way to this point, you know what I'm going to do, which is I support black writing and black letters. So if you have listened to this point and you shoot me an email, the first 10 people are going to get a copy of Dr. Love's book. Oh, thank um, you. They are going to either get a, a paperback version an audible version, but I'm not going to give you a Kindle version. I support sustainable reading, but why is the Kindle version more expensive than the paperback? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. But anyways, listeners, 10 copies of the book uh, for the first 10 people who emailed me. That's, what's That's up. my final word. Ray? Word up. And listen, I, you know, I'm glowing right now. This is the closest that I'm ever going to get to loving basketball. So, <laughs> cut his mic. <laughs> cut his mic. Ain't nothing intelligent about to come out. <laughs> go, go ahead, brother. That's it for me. Oh, okay. Uh, cool. Uh, Dr. Love, thank you so much. I hope you had a good time. Uh, you are more than welcome to come back. And if there are names of folks that you think should, should come and be part of the conversation, shoot them our way. Um, I just and that we should be reading up on and, and things like that. I, some of them I was familiar with. I don't know if I was familiar with everybody that you, um, did, you know, that you shared. So what we'll do is Dr. Love, if you can actually provide, you can just send me a message. If you want to provide like a reading list for folks, we'll push okay. that two hours as well. Um, but hopefully you enjoyed yourself and you felt welcome. Uh, and like I said, you are more than welcome to be with the hands anytime that you like. Uh, so I will leave final word to you. Yeah, well, I just want to say thank you. Um, you four are so different and absolutely hilarious. But at the end of the day, this is what it's about, right? Because we don't have to agree about necessarily, we don't have to agree on the methods, but we all got to agree on the end result. And then at the end of the day, we're going to have to agree on the methods too. So, but these arguments and these conversations are what it's about. So I'm just delighted and I'm thankful that you all have me on the show. And to speak to the pipeline issue, we have to think about what it means to teach white educators. I'm sorry. There's just not enough of us, right? There's not, there's not enough black folks to go around. So we are going to have to think about a pipeline to teach and what it would mean to teach, radically teach and love black children. And that has to be the premise of what we mean when we create our pipeline. We're not just creating a pipeline so you can go and teach. We're creating a pipeline so you can change minds and have those students feel loved and cared on. And at the end of the day, the argument about test scores, I really don't give a shit about. I care if those students leave knowing who they are why they are important, why they are special. Because I think we all can agree that you can have the best SAT scores, you can have the best grades, but if you don't know who you are, this world will eat you alive. So mm -hmm. I really don't care about test scores. So at the end of the day, we have to be having teachers. And yes, they're going to have to be white teachers. We're just not enough of the damn population. To sit here and say, hey, to teach a black child, to teach a brown child is to know them know their family, know their community, know their history, know their brilliance. And if you don't know that, 
we are going to respectfully ask you to leave. And until teacher education and schools of education get the courage to do that, we are screwed. Mm -hmm. And that's just at the end of the day what it's going to have to take. And so until we can create our own teacher education pipelines and that they can be certified and that we can be in solidarity with white folks who say, I want to come teach black children. And we lay down the ground rules and they say, I can do that. But the rope and the leash is short. <laughs> We're not going, you're not going to have, you're not going to experiment on our babies. And so I think that's where we have to think about not just building schools, but building a pipeline and including white folks in that pipeline who truly want to do the work. And so until we figure that out, we have to be trying to think about schooling. And I will always say outside of schools. How are we giving these babies their after school classes, their Sunday schools, their Saturday schools, their freedom schools? You know, I talk about in the book what I went through. I got politicized when I was a young person, eight or nine years old in a program called Fist, Fighting Ignorance, Spreading Truth. And to, to be frank, honest with you, I had black teachers, I had good black teachers, but none of them kept it real like when I was in that program. And I wouldn't be here today if I didn't get politicized at a very young age that my voice was important that I will never back down to anybody and I will call out injustice when I see it. I learned that at eight or nine years old and it has stuck with me. So we have to know that it's not just about grades, not about test scores with black and brown kids. To be a person of color in this country means that you walk with your head up, you are proud, you are in love with yourself and you see your skin and schools have to teach that. And if they don't, then we have to have Saturday schools, after schools, Sunday schools, I don't care, to get our black babies together so they can go back into those schools and fight and feel loved on and cared on in their community. So we can never just talk about schools without talking about the community, the community, community. Because no matter what, that's where they live. So I'm always about trying to think about what's next. So I would just end to say that, you know, I hope to come back on your show in about a year and a half and talk about the Abolish Teaching Network that I'm trying to build here in Atlanta to take nationwide. Um, we're going to take, we're going to be grassroots. We're not taking anybody's money, uh, but folks who want to give a donation, we're not even trying to be a 503C because we don't, we want to be partisan. And so I hope to come back on your show in a year and a half, two years, and talk about the work that we're trying to do to build that teacher pipeline, to support radical teachers, and to create spaces for black kids and brown kids to go to feel whole and feel loved on and feel supported until we tear down these systems. Mm. Yeah. And with that, thank you, Dr. Love, for being with us. Let us do let us, let us know how we can be helpful in that endeavor. And for the eight black hands. We will see you all next time. Peace. Appreciate y'all. Thank you. Some of those teachers up to Philly. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, Elmecki, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening. want you to check out a really great book on Amazon called The Last Black Teacher, Race, Education, and Students of Color by Wanda A. Alderman, PhD. Really fits into the issues that you're talking about. Definitely check it out.